Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to, if you can believe it, episode five. Episode five, chapter four. Yep. Just to keep things interesting. If you're scoring from home. Yes. Sorry about that. We'll fix that up next year. I'm Don't sure. worry about that. Yeah, this will be a fun episode. Chapter four in the ambitious card, Eli gets to rebut the mentalist Gray by doing uh, Eli's own trick on stage, trying to reproduce some of the effects that Gray does, quote unquote, uh, mentally. Uh, and in particular, he does a version of the ambitious card, which concludes with his own tribute to Max Molini's card stab. So let me let me ask this question. I know, but not, maybe people listening to this uh, would not necessarily. Uh, he, Max Molini, not a household name by right? no means. No, yeah. by no means. But but to magicians, he is revered. Even though most of us, almost all of us alive today, never ever ever saw anything that Max Molini did. Yeah, he was a really innovative magician around the turn of the century. And in addition to a couple other things that he's famous for, which one of which will turn up uh, in season three when we start talking about the Miser's Dream, he's famous for the Molini card stab. And rather than you and me stumbling our way through trying to explain who Max Molini is or was or what the card stab was, we reached out to the millionaire's magician, uh, Steve Cohen, who is a phenomenal magician. He really is. Yeah, I have some uh, I have some notes on Steve just to get people uh, up to speed on Steve. Steve would almost be a, a modern day version of Max Molini in a way. I think he modeled a lot of what he does, particularly on seeking a, a high end audience on, on the Max Molini model. Well, so let me tell you just a little bit about uh, Steve. Uh, he has delighted and mystified audiences all over the world. He has a long running weekly show called Chamber Magic. Used to be at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Now it's at the New York Palace. It's consistently reviewed as one of New York's best kept secrets and must see theatrical events. He holds the esteemed rank of member of the Inner Magic Circle with Gold Star, awarded by the Magic Circle in London. They don't just give that out. They don't. There's a specific number they give it to, and they can't. Once they hit that number, they can't hand it out again until one of those members dies. Oh, is that right? Kind of a cheery thought right there. So if you wanted to work your way into that, it'd be a kind hearts and coronets situation where you have to kill off a lot of magicians. Uh, (laughs) Challenge accepted. Okay, cool. Now, you and I have separately seen Steve Cohen's show at the Waldorf. I don't know how many years ago it was for me. It might have been 10. might have been 10 years ago. Yeah, because I think I saw it after you saw it. So if you if it was 10 for you, it was probably eight or nine for me. But yeah, I was completely charmed, blown away, delighted. Uh, I, anytime I know anybody who's traveling to New York, I say you should absolutely see if you can get a ticket to Steve Cohen's show because it is just fantastic. It is. It's a, it's a small show, 50 or 60 people at the most uh, in a suite at the hotel. Uh, it has a certain Victorian feel to it. He doesn't do anything particularly modern. Uh, but what I was struck by, and I think you had the same experience, was by the end of the show, absolutely everyone in that audience has been touched in one way or another by the magic, whether physically going up on stage and helping him, or he's done something or said something, uh, a pretty phenomenal feat to pull off. 
Yeah, it absolutely is. And, uh, you know, sometimes when people uh, who uh, have seen their uh, uncle do magic or somebody in a, you know, there's a, a level of sort of, um, you know, you have a, a concept in your mind of what, a magic show is or could be or you've seen this or that this is completely different he has elevated the experience of going to a magic show to something that i think is extraordinary really i do it's 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 a phenomenal experience so so not only did he model uh part of his career on what max Malini did but he has also literally written a book on max Malini, which is why we wanted to talk to him about this uh, influential magician and also about the card stab that Eli performs at the end of the chapter. So we asked him about a lot of stuff, but the first thing we asked him was, who was Max Malini? So Max Malini was a itinerant performer who traveled the world uh, in the early 20th century uh, he really got his break in 1901, 1902, and started performing for royalty in London, then came back to Washington, was performing for the senators and the presidents in Washington, uh, and then eventually started traveling the world, performing close-up magic tricks for the upper class. And it's ironic because Max Mullaney himself was hardly from the upper class. In fact, he was kind of a bumbling little guy from Eastern Europe who immigrated to America in the 1880s and then worked his way up from being kind of a rough and tumble urchin to performing for kings and queens. So he, he really kind of ran the gamut from being at the lowest end of society and then performing for the upper end of society during the course of his career. How did he get in front of that audience and why did he pick that audience? Well, you know, there's a, a saying, you know, if you want to make money, go where the money is, right? <laughs> And so his father, Malini's father, actually said that to him. He said, if you want to make money, you should be walking behind a truck full of gold. And so he would often, you know, find himself in situations where he'd be on the street performing for people. And he realized, well, if I perform for these people in downtown, maybe I'll make more money if I perform for the people uptown. So he's in New York City performing in the Bowery. Uh, we're talking in the 18, 1890s. But then he said, hey, you know, if I go up to maybe the, the, the 40s, the West 40s, the 45th Street, 46th Street, where there's much more wealthy people living there, maybe I'll be able to make bigger tips, which he started doing. And then they started inviting him to their home parties. And little by little, Malini found himself ingratiated by these people who didn't see him as a threat because he was just this, you know, kind of a rough guy. But um, but was kind of adorable and cute and roly-poly and, and looked like a like a big marshmallow. One of the most famous sayings of Max Malini was that if you were to perform a sleight of hand, you should never perform it when people are watching. And Charlie Miller, a famous magician from the West Coast, said, well, how long do you wait to make sure they don't catch your move? And he says, I wait a week. <laughs> ah, so these are the kinds of things, I guess, that set him apart maybe from his peers at that time, huh? Well, Max Malini was not necessarily the greatest sleight of hand expert, but he was really great at misdirection. And he was also really great at setting up situations that um, were almost like, like a short con or maybe in some cases even a long con where he would 
arrange, I, I know we're, we have non-magicians listening to this. So I want to be a little delicate in the way I express this. But he would he would prepare tricks in advance, sometimes weeks or even months in advance, and then play it out uh, when the actual event was taking place. I'll give you an example of one of the great effects without giving a secret away. He was performing uh, for a reporter at a hotel, up in his own hotel suite. And he borrowed the hat pin from the reporter and made that hat pin vanish. So then the reporter's like, well, where did it go? He goes, I can't tell you, it's, it's just gone. I'm a magician, I don't know. <laughs> and then at the end of the interview, Malini walks downstairs with this reporter to the carport where the taxis are pulling up, taxi stand. And Malini says, why don't you take this taxi home? The reporter gets inside the taxi and sees his own hat pin stuck into the cushion of the back seat. <laughs> so think about that, right? So, you know, it's very elaborate if you think about how that must have or might have been accomplished. What was it about him that made you decide, decide that a book needed to be written about Max Malini? So Max Malini has always been a great interest to me. I've kind of followed his career and followed in his footsteps in many cases um, by performing in many of the same stages and auditoriums that he actually used to perform in. But I always admired the fact that he was a, a, a Jewish guy, just like myself, who was short, <laughs> much like myself. I wasn't quite as, as, as short as him. He's five foot two, I'm five foot nine, but still, you know, kind of diminutive. And it um, also had a specialty in close-up magic, which is one of my passions. So, you know, I found myself following his footsteps and, and I realized that, you know, if, like I said, if you want to perform, if you want to, if you want to make money, you have to go where the money is. And I always had these ambitions of making a living being a close-up magician. So it's always good to have a template uh, if you want to accomplish any sort of greatness. Find someone who's already been great and see if you can follow the, the, the clues that they leave behind. So I followed a lot of Malini's clues and, and realized that I can perhaps uh, perform in the same spots that he performed. Like he used to perform at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Well, that's where I went and ended up doing my show for 16 years. So I think also that one of the great things about Malini is that he didn't have to travel with, with that many props. You know, he was kind of doing the most with the least. And I think that if you can do the most with the least, then you've won the game. So that's one of my, uh, one of my mantras is to see if you can do the most with the least. In your research, do you know how, he de how Malini developed the cards dev? Sure. So if you look at the expert at the card table by S.W. Erdnase, you'll find a uh, trick that's described in detail uh, called the divining rod. And the divining rod is essentially the Malini card stab using just one card. And the Malini card stab essentially is having uh, multiple cards selected, the, they're returned to the deck, the deck is shuffled, the magician is blindfolded, the cards are laid out on the table. The magician then takes a knife and starts poking at the cards and stabs individual cards in this jumble of, of, of cards on the table. And one by one is able to find the cards in order that the people have called out. So for example, person number one, what was your card? And they say the seven of diamonds. And sure enough, the seven of diamonds is already on the blade mm. uh, because he just, he just jabbed it. And Malini essentially was extrapolating the divining rod that S.W. Erdnase described in the expert at the card table and performed it with multiple cards as opposed to just a single card. 
and, and, and you know, the single card effect had been performed by other magicians as well. It, there, there had been versions prior to uh, the card stab where it was a card on the wall where a magician would throw the cards at the wall and then fire a gun and one card would get pinned to the wall with the bullet. But that goes back to the, six, the 17th century, the 18th century. So the effect of finding a card by either isolating it or pinning it uh, has been done in, in various formats. Uh, card sword had also been performed prior to that in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, where a magician would throw the cards up in the air and pierce a sword into the jumble of cards and find the card at the tip of the sword. So, you know, the effect of finding a card using a weapon has been around for quite some time. What Molini really did bring to the table was this idea of having multiple cards selected and then the finale of jabbing the knife into the final card tipping the table forward, having all the cards that are remaining that are loose fall to the floor. So now there's just a single card pinned to the table. And then, you know, you've now basically committed yourself. And, you know, there's no way out. All the other cards are gone. And say the final person, what was your card? They say the six of clubs. And you pull up the six of clubs off the, you know, the table and then pull the blindfold off and, you know, take your applause. One of the wow. things that Molini also used to do at the end, which I think is brilliant, is he had this handkerchief which had been tied to his head uh, with knots. He would then take the handkerchief off and make the knots melt away, like with Slidini's silks. Uh, the knot would just vanish. And I think that was just a really interesting little denouement to the, uh, the entire effect. That not even the, the knots could remain. <laughs> That's an, um, an amazing routine. It, it really is. And, and, you know, one of the things that Melanie would do to make it interesting, because, you know, he did with, with, with 10 to 15 cards, which I, I personally think is too many. I think doing it with, with five cards, which is probably his, his most common uh, performance, was, was a good length. But once you start going to seven, eight, nine, ten cards, you really have to have variation uh, in order to make it interesting. So Melanie would, would shake it up a little bit. Uh, by that I mean sometimes he would have he would stab two cards and then lift it up and, and lift the blade up and show that there was uh, the wrong card on the face and say oh I'm so sorry he would remove the front card to show the correct card right behind it or he would for example have a card fall to the floor and then he would drop to his knees and jab a card on the floor again while blindfolded and find the selected card that had just straight off the table so there are all sorts of variations. Uh, Bob Sheets, who's probably the greatest living performer of the card stab t today, does a great stab behind his back where he stabs one card with his arm behind his back. So he can't even see, obviously, because he's poking behind himself. You know, there's, there's all different ways to make it intriguing. And you have to give texture to the performance, which is what Molini was able to do. Have you ever worked that into your act, any form of the card stab? I've performed the Molini card stab. It gets incredible reactions. Um, I haven't made it a regular part of my show simply because, like I mentioned, you end up with a mess on the floor. And um, I, I don't want to have a mess in the middle of my show on the floor. It might end up being a closer, but I've never put it into that position. So I've used it in private performances, but never in the public show. Do you, do you bring your own table when you do that? It's a great question. So, yeah. so one of the great uh, ideas that Johnny Thompson brought to the table was that, you know, if you start stabbing people's tables, they can get angry, right? You, know, you go to someone's house and you leave a gashing mark in their table. They're, they're never going to, to forgive you. So what Johnny Thompson brought to the table was using a wooden cutting board, like a kitchen cutting board you can find in a dollar store. 
this way you're you're stabbing into this surface that's meant to have blades in, impaled in it. And um, so that's what I've done before is I've used a, a wooden cutting board. And if you're performing at someone's house, typically they'll have one, right? So you're going, you don't even have to prepare anything much like Malini used to do. You would just do everything on the fly. So if you see a wooden cutting board in someone's house and you, you, know, you know they have a cloth napkin, you're ready to do this trick. Now, one of the legends of Max Malini was that he performed this trick at the home of an upper class person in Park Avenue. I've heard other instances of the same story, performing it at the, the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco, another time in London at an upscale hotel. And he performed the blindfolded card stab into an antique table, like let's say a Louis XIV table. And these are beautifully designed antiques, really irreplaceable. And he left a gashing mark with his blade in the top surface of these beautiful antique tables. And the legend goes that the host of this party came up to Molini and said, you, Mr. Molini, you've left a gashing mark in my table. You've, you've destroyed it. What do I tell people in the future? And Molini in his gruff voice said, you can tell them that Max Molini made that mark. <laughs> right? So, so imagine the gall, the nerve yes. it takes <laughs> to, to destroy someone's antique property and then say, well, you could tell them that I made it. <laughs> I made that mark. The mark wow. was made by me. And yeah, in many cases, he's right, right? If, if, if someone's a legend, now you've added to the legend and there's a, there's a physical proof of it that would be able to, uh, to, to carry on that, that legend, you know, with proof in the future. <laughs> that's great. Yes, that's uh, Steve Cohen and Max Molini. Uh, what a character and that can apply to either one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's so much uh, with Steve that we didn't talk about. Right. But we needed to stay focused on Maximilian. He will come back when we start uh, season two because he's one of the few people in the world who's done the bullet catch and season two is and all about it. it. Yeah, and survived it. Uh, uh, almost survived it. I mean, he yeah. did. No, he did survive it. Totally, no, he did survive it. He did survive it. But, did survive, yes, but I, I see why you put the almost. Yeah, he. I've yeah. said it wrong, but he he was almost killed. Wait till right. you hear the story, folks. Yes, it's and up. then uh, I'm going to have him come back in season three as well because there's another Max Mooney reference in The Miser's Dream. But anyway, it was so great to have him talk about uh, Max Mooney. It was interesting for me to see that I hadn't done my research all that well when I wrote The Ambitious Card because although Eli says he's doing the Max Mooney card stab, he's really just doing a, a minimal version of it. Uh, as Steve said, there normally are more cards that are chosen with the with the knife, and he ends up dumping the table over. But for all intents and purposes, he was doing a pretty decent rendition of the of the Malini card step in the yeah, book. Eli, yeah, yeah, in the book, Eli's doing an okay version of it. He's just not doing the the full Malini. I think you know the full Malini. I think that should be we should that should be a thing. The full Malini. I'm going to give you the full Malini if you don't watch out, pal. <sighs> Uh, you know, that, that I, I think that that's a difference that has to do largely with modern audiences. I think that we have gotten to a place where Malini would do a dozen cards. I don't yep. think we could, I, I, you know, after three, I get it. Yeah. You, exactly. You're stabbing cards and you're able to find them somehow. I get it. I, I don't need to see 10 more of that. Exactly. Uh, three is the magic number. Eugene Berger once said to me, I had a wrapping hand that I wanted to use in a show and uh, I was going to have it spell out something. And Eugene said, no, it wraps once 
It's amazing. It wraps twice. It's cool. They wraps three times. They're looking at their watches. You can't do more than two wraps. It's death. I said, okay, okay, you're right. I get it. And that's where I'm. So when Steve talked about that, I, I was like, oh yeah, they're yep. Exactly. Well, I think that Eli's made the right choice, as people will discover as they listen now to chapter four. Before you start reading, I know you got the book in hand there. You're ready to go. Just hold on one second. Let's quickly recap in case you've forgotten what's happened so far. Eli's still in the Wabasha Street Caves. He's just seen all of Gray's Mentalism Act. With him is his landlord and his, his new magic student, Pete, and the British freelance journalist, Clive Albans. And now it's Eli's turn to rebut Grace. So here is chapter four, The Ambitious Card. The Ambitious Card, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter four. Okay, we're back, the TV host said as the red light popped on above the main camera. I was on stage at the large wooden table, trying to look casual and relaxed and feeling neither. My unease was heightened by the placement of Gray, who was seated at the other end of the table. This was an unexpected development, and the only solace I could take in the situation was that it seemed to be just as unanticipated for Gray as well. During the break, as the host chatted casually with me while I settled into my place on stage, he suddenly turned to the floor manager and said, Hey! Why don't we get Gray back out here as well? Might be fun to have the two of them on camera together. Is he still here? Can we do that? This was followed by several energetic and hushed conversations by crew members around the room, speaking frantically into their headsets. A few moments later, Gray stepped back into the room, just pulling on a black wool coat. The host saw him from the stage and pointed him out to the crowd. Hey, folks, he boomed to the audience. How many of you would like Gray to stick around for this next segment? Even if Gray had tried to decline, he would have been drowned out by the thunderous ovation the audience gave to this seemingly spontaneous suggestion. Moments later, he was rewired with a microphone and seated at the other end of the table from me, where he still sat stiffly, refusing to look me in the eye. We just had a great paranormal experience with psychic, mentalist, and spiritualist Gray, the host continued, speaking directly into the camera. Without any prompting from the floor manager, the audience began applauding wildly. Gray smiled wanly and tilted his head a fraction of an inch, acknowledging their adoration. And joining us now, he continued, glancing down at his ubiquitous index card, is debunker and magician Eli Marks. He waited a beat too long, anticipating an interruption by applause, which clearly wasn't coming. The floor manager, standing just off camera, frantically gave the audience the applause signal. Their response was at best lackluster, clapping with the same enthusiasm that a group of kids might display when being forced to welcome the man who was about to kill Santa Claus. The host glanced at the index card in his hand again and then looked up at me. So, Eli, you saw all of Gray's performance tonight, right? Yes, I did, I said. As a debunker of paranormal events, did it set off all of your internal alarms, all the bells and whistles? <laughs> he chuckled good-naturedly. Well, to begin with, I prefer the term skeptic rather than debunker. I began, but he quickly cut me off. 
debunker, skeptic, either way, you don't believe for a second that what Gray did here tonight was supernatural in any way, do you? I looked from the host to the crowd to Gray, who was ignoring my very existence. Here's the deal, I said, suddenly turning back to the host as I decided to just jump in and do it. Gray is very good at what he does, really. He has excellent crowd control, solid routines, and is obviously skillful. I have no issue with that. What gets me, what sticks in my craw, as my uncle would say, is that he presents the tricks that he's performing as if they were real. And you're saying they're not real? The host asked provocatively. Not one second of it. Look, I said, leaning forward and gesturing toward Gray across the table from me. Gray is a great mentalism act, really. He could make a handsome living in a Las Vegas showroom for years to come with that act. Not at one of the bigger hotels on the Strip, I added, but he could aspire to a job downtown. My joke, such as it was, got nothing from the audience. So then if it's all bogus, can you tell us how he does it? The host asked provocatively. Let us in on all the little secrets. I sat back in my chair with a sigh. Well, you see, that's going to be a problem. Essentially, what Gray did tonight was a magic show, and we magicians are not known for our willingness to let our secrets out. A professional magician never reveals his methods, the host offered. Something like that, I agreed. Well, don't take this the wrong way, Eli, the host said, getting ready to go in for the kill. But you appear to want it both ways. You say it's all fake and not real, but at the same time, you won't explain how it's done. That doesn't seem quite fair, does it? He winked at the audience and got a smattering of applause in response. They still hated me, but now for a new reason. That was progress of a sort, I guess. Maybe I can meet you halfway, I said. What parts do you want to know about? He glanced down at his notes. Let's start at the top. How did he stop his heartbeat? I shook my head. Sorry, folks, that's a magic trick. Can't reveal that. I can duplicate it for you if you'd like, but I won't tell you how it's done. Okay, then, he continued scanning through his notes. How did he identify people in the audience? He knew their names, what they were wearing, objects they were holding, and he did it all while blindfolded. Can you explain how he did that? Well, for starters, just because you have a blindfold on doesn't necessarily mean that you're blind. But as for his method, I suspect he and his lovely assistant, Nova, the host added, gesturing to the woman in question, who was seated just off stage. Yes, the lovely Nova. I suspect that the two of them used a fairly simple verbal code to communicate the information. In fact, if you were paying close attention, or even if you weren't for that matter, I think you might have recognized they were having a wee bit of trouble with it tonight. I looked over at Gray, who was glaring at Nova. She looked away, and Gray huffed quietly and folded his arms in disgust. All right, fair enough, the host said, looking down and flipping to a new card in his stack. What about his second sight ability, reading the words from books and magazines held by audience members? There clearly wasn't any code going on there. I nodded in agreement. No, I think a more sophisticated technology was used for that. I picked up the wireless handheld microphone that Nova had left on the table. 
Remember earlier when Nova got too close to one of the speakers in the audience with this microphone? How there was that loud, annoying feedback? I was saying this to the host, but I could see audience members nodding along with me as I spoke. Well, that's because you don't want to get a live microphone too near a speaker. Whether it's a great big speaker on a stand in front of the stage, I said, waving the microphone toward one of the distant speakers, or a little tiny speaker hidden somewhere else. With that, I waved the microphone past the left side of Gray's head, which produced a loud, shrill, electronic shriek from somewhere near his left ear. He leapt up, holding his ear and moving quickly away from the table. Damn it, he said, rubbing his ear furiously. Then he must have realized that not only was he still in front of a live audience, he was also on live television. Ever the professional, he regained his composure just as quickly as he had exploded. He bowed slightly to the audience, ran a hand through his hair, and glared quietly at the host as he returned to his chair. I didn't come on this program to be insulted, he said, sitting heavily in his seat. I have a gift that I have proven again and again countless times. I don't need the blessing of this, this performing monkey. Gray spit out the last words like a curse. He flinched slightly as I moved the microphone toward him again, and then I set it midway between us on the table as a gesture of truce. The host was still flipping through the cards. Perhaps, Mr. Marks, you could explain how he predicted each of the questions in the sealed envelopes. And even more impressive than that, there were all the facts he seemed to know about the audience members, people he'd never met before, according to him. Impressive? Perhaps, I began, but not really all that difficult. What about when he revealed that someone in this room had a relative who died on the toilet? You don't just pull that out of thin air, do you? And he even knew how the fellow died, a heart attack, if I remember correctly. He nodded in agreement with several nearby audience members. To begin with, dying while on the toilet may be a unique event, but it's not as rare as you might think. How many people do we have in this room? I asked, doing a quick scan of the crowd. About 200 people? Give or take, the host agreed. Well, in a group of 200 people, I would guess you have maybe a one in three chance of finding at least one person who knows of someone who died while on the toilet. For an act like Gray's, for any mentalist, that's a chance worth taking because it's a big payoff for very little risk. And as for the cause of death, There weren't really all that many options, I continued. When death comes on a toilet, it's traditionally in the form of a heart attack or stroke, not a fall from a great height or a gunshot wound, unless you're John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. That actually produced a ripple of laughter from the crowd. It didn't turn the tide, but finally I was feeling a little less hate coming from the group. Okay, the host acknowledged, but what about... Divining the questions on the cards in sealed envelopes, I think of myself as a pretty smart guy, and to me, that seems to defy explanation. Let me see here, I said. How can I explain the technique without giving away too much? I sat quietly for a moment, not trying to build drama, although that was the unintended effect, but to actually figure out a way to explain what Gray had done without screwing up about a hundred other magic tricks that use the same method. There's a technique in magic called one ahead, I finally said, talking first to the host and then turning and addressing the crowd. And it's as simple 
as it sounds. The magician is one ahead. That one might be a piece of information, a name, a question, or even a physical object like a coin or a ball. The magician has it, and the audience doesn't know it. So he's one ahead. I gestured toward Gray, who was still steadfastly refusing to look in my direction. In the case of Gray's envelope trick, somehow he got the first question ahead of time. Lots of different ways to do that, although I think I know the method he used tonight. And by being in possession of the first question, all he had to do was pretend to read that question when he was actually opening the second question. I was getting an equal amount of head nodding and blank stares from the audience. The host was going to say something, but even he seemed a bit baffled. I reached into my coat pocket and took out the deck of cards I always carry. Let me demonstrate the same thing, but with the deck of playing cards, I said, as I spread the cards face down in a mess all over the table. I'll need some help with this, I said, gesturing toward the host, and then, in a burst of inspiration, toward Nova as well. As the audience applauded, the host bounded back up to the stage while Nova moved at a much less enthusiastic pace. Let me see if I can remember the pattern for this routine. I said as much to myself as to the crowd. It took a few seconds for me to mentally sort through my card trick files, and then I remember the routine. Okay, I think I've got it. I spread the cards around on the tabletop some more to mix them even further. The host was standing over me, and Nova had just crossed the stage. Gray, seated across the table from me, looked like an unhappy statue. Every time I try to write the word psychic, I said, rolling into the routine, I somehow always end up writing the word physics. Now, except for sharing most of the same letters in common, the two words may seem unrelated, but they're actually a lot closer than you might think. You see, in quantum physics, it's understood that the very act of observing an action invariably changes the outcome. And it turns out the same is true in some psychic situations. I moved the pile of cards around on the table, flattening it out, exposing nearly all the card backs. Now, all of us are to one degree or another psychic. However, just like in physics, sometimes the very act of observing our psychic work will change the outcome. So, for this effect, each one of you is going to use your psychic powers but we're not going to look at the results until the end, because looking at them might actually change that outcome. I looked up at the host, who was anxiously scanning the cards spread across the table. You can start, I said. Using your psychic powers, I want you to point out the queen of hearts. Don't pick it up. Just point to the card that your psychic powers tell you is the queen of hearts. The host studied the cards for a long moment, finally pointing to a card in the center of the pile. I picked it up, glanced at the face of the card without letting any of them see it. Good job, good job. I looked up at Nova, who was standing nervously beside Gray. I caught her eye and gave her a smile, which she returned shyly. Nova, I'd like you to use your psychic abilities to find, let's see, um, why don't you try to find the Ten of Clubs? Nova appeared to be taking her task very seriously. She considered the mass of cards and then suddenly pointed to one card on the far edge of the group. Are you sure that's the Ten of Clubs? I asked. 
She thought about it for a moment and then nodded decisively. I picked up the card and glanced at the front. Well done. I looked at the card spread out across the table and then looked up at Gray, who was still stubbornly refusing to look in my direction. I glanced from him to the audience as I said, How many of you would like to see Gray pick one of the cards? Without any prompting from the floor manager, the audience burst into an energetic round of applause. Gray smiled grimly at this outburst and then slowly turned his head and acknowledged me. His eyes were boiling over with hatred. He was seething and I think would have killed me with his bare hands if we hadn't been on live television. Great, I said, trying to keep my voice from cracking. Gray, why don't you point out, uh, point out where the two of diamonds is? Without taking his eyes off me, he pointed at a random card on the table. I reached for the card and inspected the front of it. Perfect, I said, trying to keep things light. And now I'm feeling a little psychic myself, so I'm going to see if I can find a card as well. Let's see. I'll find, uh, I'll find the four of hearts. I picked up a card off the table, added it to the three others in my hand, and then placed each one down face up on the table with a flourish as I called out. There they are, the four of hearts, the two of diamonds, the ten of clubs, and the queen of hearts. The host gathered up the four cards and held them up for the audience, but it was an unnecessary step. The audience was already applauding wildly. The host clapped me on the back, and Nova gave me a shy grin. Gray was the only one not smiling. That, without giving anything away, I explained as the applause began to subside, uses the same technique that Gray used with the questions in the envelopes. I was one ahead. We've still a couple minutes of the show left, the host said, treating me now like I was his best friend in the world. Is there anything else you can show us tonight? Well, let's see, I said as I gathered up the cards and straightened them back into a pack. I looked over at Gray, who was still fuming, and the part of my personality that often gets me into trouble suddenly spoke up. How about a quick card trick with just Gray here? The audience showed their enthusiasm for the idea by bursting into applause again. That sounds like fun, the host said over the ovation, and then he turned to Gray. Are you up for it? He asked, pretending that Gray had a choice in the matter. Gray could see there was no way out, so he pretended, badly, as it turned out, to be a good sport. Sure thing, he said, with all the sincerity of a used car salesman. I quickly shuffled the cards and then shuffled them again. After seeing him perform tonight, I sense that Gray is an ambitious guy. So this will be the perfect card trick for him. It's called the ambitious card. Why, you ask? I stated rhetorically without stopping for anyone to answer. Because, just like our friend Gray here, one particular card always finds its way to the top. I fanned the cards and held them out to Gray. Pick a card. I said, adding a carnival barker inflection to my voice. Pick a card, any card. This produced more laughter from the crowd than it really warranted. Practically dripping with contempt, Gray reached out and pulled a card out of the cluster without even bothering to look at it. I gathered the cards together and pivoted in my chair, turning my back on him. Now, go ahead and sign your name on the face of the card just to ensure that I don't try to switch cards later on. I could hear him sigh deeply, 
and then I heard the rustle of clothing as he pulled a pen out of his suit coat pocket. Moments later, I heard the scratching of the pen on the card, then the click of the pen and the sound of rustling again. All set? I asked, with a bit too much cheer. Yes, all set, he replied, with virtually no inflection in his voice. I turned back to the table and once again held the cards out to him, slowly riffling through them. Say stop wherever you like, I instructed. Stop, he growled. I stopped riffling and told him to place the card at that spot in the deck, which he did with little enthusiasm. I cut the cards and then gave the deck two quick shuffles. So, I mixed the cards twice and cut them once. Your card is buried somewhere in the deck, but like I said, it's an ambitious card. So, with a little coaxing from me, I said as I gave the bottom of the deck a hard flick of my index finger, your card magically moves to the top of the deck. With that, I peeled back the top card, revealing a signed card, the King of Diamonds. Gray stared at me with disdain, but the crowd applauded wildly. I looked at the card and then looked from the card to the diamond rings on Gray's fingers. King of Diamonds, I said. How fitting. With that, I launched into the trick with fervor. I shuffled the deck. The King of Diamonds returned to the top. The host shuffled the deck. The King of Diamonds returned to the top. I shuffled the deck and let Nova cut it three times in a row. The card returned to the top of the deck. It's a persistent little bugger, isn't it? I said to Gray, who seemed to have only one facial expression. Utter revulsion. Perhaps I thought he was one of those rare people who didn't like card tricks. There may be only one solution, I continued, putting the card back with the others and shuffling them vigorously. We may have to take lethal steps. I shuffled the card one last time and then spread all the cards face down across the table in front of me. Great, could I bother you to lend me your blindfold and your letter opener, that wickedly sharp one you used earlier? I thought for a second that I had finally pushed him too far and that he was going to explode and come across the table at me, but to his credit, he kept his cool. Slowly, oh so slowly, he reached into his coat and withdrew the long strip of black fabric and the letter opener, setting both on the table just outside of my reach. Before I could lean forward to take the objects, Nova moved in and picked up both of them. She moved into assistant mode, stepping behind me and placing the letter opener on the table near my right hand. And then she took the blindfold and covered my eyes, skillfully tying a snug knot against the back of my head. I could feel her breath on my neck and her perfume wafted past my nose. Her hands danced lightly on my shoulders, straightening my shirt, adjusting my collar, and then I could feel her stepping back to her original position to watch the finale of the trick. The conclusion of this illusion, I said poetically, comes courtesy of the great magician Max Malini, who invented and perfected this move over his long and illustrious career. I felt across the top of the table, sliding the cards around with both hands to mix them up even more. I moved my right hand until I could feel the sharp point of the letter opener, carefully sliding my hand down the blade until I was able to grasp the handle. I would ask that if any of you have your hands or any other body part on the table, please remove them immediately as I'm flying blind on this one. I could sense the host and Nova take a step back, but felt no movement from Gray's side of the table. 
I gave a few of the cards one final push with my left hand as I raised the blade in my right. Let's just see if we can trap that ambitious card, I said, and then with a sudden movement buried the tip of the blade into the tabletop. There was a surprised gasp from the crowd, which grew in volume and intensity as I pulled off the blindfold with my left hand, keeping my right firmly on the handle of the letter opener. I rocked the blade back and forth, carefully removing it from where it had jabbed the table. Several cards fell away as I lifted the letter opener, revealing that only one card had been actually stabbed. I tilted the letter opener forward, holding the face of the card up to the crowd and, I'll admit, to the television camera. It was the King of Diamonds, with the point of the blade cutting evenly through his one eye. I removed the card from the tip of the blade, and reaching across the table, I slid it into the front breast pocket of Gray's suit, giving it a final pat as I did. The host was wrapping up the show. The audience was applauding. Somewhere, the show's theme music was playing as the credits rolled. All that was lost on me, though, as my attention was directed completely at Gray. He was staring at me from across the table, seething with fury anger, and even more hatred than before. I was sorry to be the cause of all that, and part of me considered just for a moment that I may have pushed him too far. And for a split second, I felt bad about it, but only for a second. To be fair, though, I don't think it would have improved his mood any if he had known that in less than four hours he would no longer be angry. He would instead be dead. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's chapter four. So I, I guess that's it for Greg. I'm not sure. It well, doesn't sound good for him. It's a cliffhanger for it sure. It is totally a cliffhanger. <laughs> Thanks for that reading, Jim. Uh, I think we had to wrap up because we're running a little long here. Before we wrap up, though, I want to thank the great Steve Cohen for chatting with us about Max Bellini. Uh, like I mentioned, he'll be back next season to talk about the bullet catch. Uh, that'll be good. And we can talk about his scar. Yes. Uh, uh, you can follow Steve folks at his website, chambermagic.com, chambermagic, all one word, dot com. Or on Facebook at facebook.com backslash chambermagic, all one word. And you can check out uh, in this episode's show notes, some links to uh, Steve Cohen performing, and you'll enjoy those. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll see you next time for chapter five of the Ambitious Card. And I should mention, we've got some great guests coming up in the near future. We've got David Regal. We've got Suzanne the Magician and a special two episode arc with the one and only Dick Cavett. Boy, that was a blast. Talking to Dick Cavett. I'm not, this is not hyperbole. Talking to Dick Cavett may have been one of the high points uh, in my whole uh, career as a performer, entertainer, uh, book reader. He, I mean, that was so much fun for me. Yeah, it was fantastic. There's a reason why it's two episodes. Yeah. Because there was just so much stuff. So that's it for us. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time for Chapter 5 of The Ambitious Card. And you know what? To make sure you don't miss an episode, folks, hit that subscribe button, why don't you? And send us a rating as well. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks Podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Thanks for listening.